Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 15, starting with verse 22. The last time we saw the first half of chapter 15 with a major theme of grace interwoven through it, today we're going to finish up chapter 15 with the results of the first church council, also known as the Jerusalem council. Verse 22. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law. To whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So this is the official church letter from the Jerusalem Council to the churches on Gentile requirements. What are they, if any, after salvation? Now, this is also in light of Matthew 11:28 through 30, where Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Becoming a believer should never become a burden. Keeping the law, special days, observing special diets, any of the have-to-do list. If we are getting to a point where our relationship with God is a have-to-do list, there's something wrong. We need to go back to the scripture. So I'm just going to, this letter, I'm going to parse it. I'm going to take it apart piece by piece and show you what was in this letter. He says, to the Gentile brethren in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. As you can see, this is the Mediterranean Sea. This is Africa. This is the Near East. And this is Europe, okay, what we know of in the modern day. Those three places, Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, this is specifically modern-day Turkey, this is specifically modern-day Lebanon, and this is specifically modern-day Syria. So those three places, Syria, Antioch, and Cilicia, were all in this kind of bottleneck area. It was the hub of the Gentile explosion of the church. What he's saying here is, in verse 24, he says, Some went out from us, troubling you with words and unsettling your souls. Hence the letter to counter, counteract that. The Greek word for souls is psukos, where we get the word in English, psyche or psychology. In other words, in layman's terms, these guys really messed with your heads with this bad doctrine. You know, when I was studying this, I could only think of this one particular group. It's a small group but they've gotten a lot of uh, airtime in the media. 
How many of you have heard of this Westboro Baptist Church? Okay. If I talk a little bit more about it, you may, um, it may come to your mind. But these are the ones that they go out to military funerals and they hold up placards. And they're vulgar. They're vulgar against the soldiers. They're vulgar against uh, homosexualities. But this is the face of Christianity that people see. And, of course, the media loves to put them on television because someone who's not a Christian may look at that and say, boy, Christians are crazy. They're, they're whacked out. Unfortunately, this a lot of times is the only face that people say of Christi- see of Christianity. But literally, they trouble many with their words, especially those who don't know God. Similar to this letter in the Bible, the majority of the Baptists today have distanced themselves from Westboro. It's kind of like an aberrant offshoot of the Baptist church. And their attitude is, hey, they're not one of us. Sometimes you have to disassociate yourself from certain types of people They went out from us, but they're not from us, if you know what I mean. False doctrine, unrepentant, sinful behavior must be rooted out and disassociated with. The Bible says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So when you take yeast and you you mix it with the dough, eventually the whole lump of dough rises because that leaven gets throughout that whole piece of dough. And it's the same thing with sin. It continues to permeate until it's ruined uh, any organization. Though many are not willing to separate themselves. Some people think, well, it's being Christ-like to continue to, you know, to, to continue to be a part of that sinful behavior. I could think about one or some people on television that are televangelists that are just teaching out-and-out false doctrine. But they seem to be very nice guys, and they probably would make great neighbors. But people's response, they're teaching false doctrine. These are some of the experts. But he's such a nice guy. He seems so genuine. Well, i got news for you. Nice people are sinners too, all right? We live, and I discussed this on Wednesday night uh, in the judges' study, we live in an age of sin coddling. Even in the church, we coddle sin. We coddle sin in our own lives, and we coddle sin in other people's lives that we familiarize ourselves with. Paul in Galatians 2 called these brothers, the ones who propagated this false doctrine, he said, they are false brethren. Wow, there's an implication there that he may not even believe that they're saved, okay? I have a good feeling that if if God was to let the Apostle Paul come back here to do a a tour and and preach throughout the churches, and I had him here next Sunday, the Apostle Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, I guarantee if he preached a sermon, some of you would be put off by him. You'd say, well, he's not showing love. This guy's a little bit brash. He could have said it in a nicer way. Again, it's the society we live in. We want our ears tickled. We want to hear nice things about ourselves. But that's not what the Bible only uh, purports. In this passage, specifically in a nutshell, it's saying, the letter is saying to the Gentiles, hey guys, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm sorry this happened to you. God doesn't impose a burden after salvation, so neither do we. We're not going to impose a, a burden to you, and we're also not going to impose our personal leanings or our pet doctrines onto you. Because God doesn't. The irony is many centuries later in history, the church changed. Over centuries, you know, you have the Jerusalem Council, you had some other councils. But over the, the hundreds of years, the face of the church started to change. And other councils came up, other church councils. And what they did was they added burdens in addition to Scripture. And this largely led to the Reformation. I have a book right here that pretty much has the minutes The Canons and Decrees of the Council of Trent. This is one of those church councils. If you open it up, you see that all these pages, there's about 100 
anathemas, or you're accursed if you don't believe this in addition to salvation. You can take a look at it after service if you'd like to. So the sad thing is, with these councils, with these papal bulls, these subsequent church councils totally undermined what the first church council instituted. The first church council instituted freedom in Christ. Subsequent ones uh, imposed burdens on the people. Verse 26 in the letter says basically that Paul and Barnabas are men who risk their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, what a reputation. And we saw in, in Acts chapter 14 examples of them risking their lives. Well, here's a personal question to me and to you. What's the extent of us risking our lives for the gospel? It's a good question. At the very least, what's the extent of our commitment as believers to Jesus Christ, the one who redeemed us from the slave market of sin? Well, I wore a what-would-Jesus-do bracelet for years. What more does he want? Or, well, I go to church maybe a Sunday out of the month when it doesn't conflict with my recreational life or my children's. I did my Christian duty. And that's sad because if we reduce our relationship with our God to a duty, how would a marriage fare in that that type of attitude? There's true stories, uh, recorded stories of during the uh, World War II, German soldiers coming in and uh, breaking down doors of Bible studies with their guns and saying, if you spit on the cross and deny Jesus, we'll let you leave with your life. And then when enough of the Christians did that and left, the ones who were left, they put, their, put down their guns and said, now tell us about this Jesus. Why would you risk your lives for this Jesus? Same thing. And again, it's just a common thread because during these oppressive regimes, whether it be the Nazi regime or the communist regime, uh, or even some present regimes, um, having a Bible study and assembling to read the Word of God is illegal. Okay? So the question is, you know, where would we fall in that? Now, I'd like to believe, I'd like to stand here and, and you know, put my fist up and say, I would never deny Jesus Christ. But you know what? The Bible says that my heart is wicked, and so is yours. And you know what? Peter said, I will never deny you, Jesus. And what happened? When they arrested him, he fled. So we don't even know our own hearts until the time comes for us to be tested. So what are we comfortable with? Are we just comfortable with being content to wear a bracelet or a a fish bumper sticker? And I have no problem with these. Or make it a comfortable social event? A lot of times Christianity has been reduced to, you know, church social Christianity. It's all about the social part of Christianity. Proverbs 14:12 says, there seems a way that's right to a man, but its end is in death. We're lulled to a false sense of security with some of our Christian culture. My question is, why are you here? Why are you here specifically? There's a few churches down the block. There's someone a few miles from here. Why are you here in this church? Is it because I put up a map or because your friends are here or because it's diverse or it's because it's small? Those are all good reasons. But my hope, or is it it a social event? My hope is that you're here, and I could be a little hardcore. My son's not the only one with Asperger's syndrome. I'm very black and white. (laughs) But why are you here? I hope you're here because you want to learn the Word of God. Because I could tell you, all those churches I mentioned, you're lucky if you get a minute that they actually go into the Scripture or even paraphrase the Scripture. Here, it's all about God's Word. Because it leaves less to the imagination. It leaves less to me putting my own spin on things. Because you've got the Bible right in front of you. You can read along with me. 
So that's why I hope that you're here, to be changed by the Word of God. And I've got to tell you, over the two and a half years I've been a pastor, the Lord's been changing me too. Sometimes I, I study and I, I put my messages together and I get convicted in my own heart by what I'm studying, you know? And that's, that's, that's the way it should be. We should have that conviction in our heart to change and be conformed into the image of Christ. Verse 28. In the letter he says, It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Did you catch that? So intimately in tune with the Holy Spirit. Are you in tune with the Holy Spirit? Could you say that? Some of you may say, well, how do I know? That's a good question. Glad you asked. The first point is, is it scriptural? It's almost become, and again, I have no problem with a lot of these things, but let me just give you an example. It's become a Christian cliche to say, you know, God laid this on my heart. People say that all the time, and it's okay. I don't want you to stop saying it because I, I talked about it today. But is it scriptural? Because if God laid something on your heart, or you think he did, and it goes against what the Bible says, I can tell you right now, God didn't lay it on your heart. Somebody else did. And I've told people that, and i pointed them to the Scripture, and I've gotten in trouble for it. But that's okay. I'll continue doing that. The second thing is, have you prayed? Hasty prayers lead to ungodly decisions. And be, care of the, be careful of the emotional factor, because including me, we've all fallen into getting caught up in the emotion of things. You know, getting caught up in the emotion of things. We've all been deceived by emotions, our own emotions. I pray a general prayer daily to the Lord and, and include in my prayers. It's like, I'm like, Lord, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or next week. I don't know what decisions I'm going to have to make in the church. Lord, I pray that you blanket my decisions with your wisdom. You know, I even pray before I have to make a decision, before I'm aware of the situation that's coming. Lord, prepare me. Prepare my decisions. Speaking about um, being open to the Holy Spirit and counsel, I remember uh, about a year ago I counseled a fellow officer, young young officer, for marital reasons. And, you know, him and his wife were having just disagreements about things. And I said, bro, it all comes down to this. You feel that when she says, I feel like Dr. Phil in the police car. I said, you feel that when she does this, that she's, she's disrespecting you. You're losing that respect. And it bothers you. He goes, that's it. You hit it right on the nose. I said, I can't even take credit for that. It's right in the scripture. God has given women the innate desire to be loved by their husbands. And God has given men the innate desire to be respected by their wives. And when a woman feels that her husband doesn't love her, or a man feels that his wife doesn't respect him, that's when you guys start getting into arguments. It's like the cycle. And somebody even wrote a book about it. But it comes right from the scripture. So... It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to me at the time that I was talking to this young man that this was the counsel that he was supposed to get. Verse 29, the letter says this, abstain from the following, abstain from blood and things strangled. And we talked two weeks ago about how they go together. Abstain from things offered to idols and abstain from sexual immorality. They all violate God's core commandments. And the prohibition against eating blood actually preceded Mosaic law, Genesis 9-4. And the pagans had a practice of drinking blood. Uh, but also, uh, God made the life of the flesh in the blood, Leviticus 17-11 tells us. And the only thing that you should do with the blood is to be put on the, uh, the altar to make atonement for our soul. So blood is precious to God. And of course, everything God does, Satan counterfeits with a perversion. So God reveres the life of the flesh that's in the blood, and the pagans would drink blood. 
So it's just what Satan does. He counterfeits God as, as many times as he can. But what I didn't say the, follow, the last two weeks was the following. Regarding these four things that were in the letter, whether you're making a prima facie case, which just means in legal terms on face value, or you're studying the culture, all these that we just mentioned, these four things, are rooted in idolatry, which is the first commandment out of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, God says to his people, and he says to us. You can't really be a Christian and worship the devil. You can't be a Christian and idol worship, so I have no problem with these things, and it's common sense. But some may say, isn't that legalism? Right? Isn't that legalism? In a sense, we, I want to hold you to something really strict, and these are your burdens after salvation, which is what we're talking about. Well, can I violate these laws because we have grace? Well, the question is, are you an antinomianist without realizing it? And an antinomianist is somebody who basically takes grace out of the Bible and says, wow, because Jesus died for my sins, I could sin, I could murder, I could do all these things, and God's going to cover me by grace. It's almost like pushing the limits on God. That's what an antinomianist is. I can behave any way I please because of grace. Let me take that situation and bring it to marriage, and I'll use myself as an example. With a husband and wife, it's a relationship, right? Just like we have a relationship with our creator. So after 10 years of marriage, I say to my wife, hey, honey, um, I had this great idea. Um, There's this girl at work, and she's really kind of cute. Do you mind, even though we're married, can I date her also? You guys must know my wife. Now, after I recovered from the left hook, I would realize that I pushed the limits of our relationship. And that's what you're doing here. The person who wants to wantonly sin and stay in their own bad behavior wants God and wants you to show them a version of grace that's a perversion. The person may be a slave to a particular sin and doesn't want to be held accountable for it. Let me read what Paul says in Romans 5. Romans 5, starting with verse 20. Romans 5.20. Paul says this. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we see sin will reign. As the population increases, sins increase. As um, people start getting away from God, sins increase. They just do. It's a fever pitch. All you have to do is go on the, the news and see how, how filthy our society is and how riddled with sin it is. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, because grace did abound the more we sinned. Eventually, God sent Jesus Christ into the world and The world was in a really bad place when Jesus was sent to die for our sins. So he didn't wait for us to clean up our act. He didn't obliterate us from the the face of the earth. He sent Jesus. Grace abounded much more. Paul says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. We talk about the old man and the new man, the old sinful man that we enjoyed to sin and we looked forward and planned our sin. But then when we're in Christ, we say, you know, the Spirit of God is in us, and we start to say, well, that's, I shouldn't have that in my life anymore. We used to be walking in newness of life, and we'd be crucified with him. 
You know, the, the sins that Jesus died for, you know, they, they should be gone. That the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Slaves of sin. When you're in sin, people think, oh, I'm free. I could do whatever I want. I, no rules. You know, I could live my life to the fullest. But what they don't realize is they're in shackles. And the amazing thing about this book is we don't see it here, not, not in our century or not in our time, but 2,000 years ago in the Roman world, almost half the population was in shackles. They were slaves. And wherever you would go, you would see people with iron fetters on their feet and chains to their hands walking like this. They were, in, 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 they were enslaved by iron. And if they tried to escape, they would be killed. And Paul's making an analogy between the slavery, the awful physical slavery that people had to endure, okay, and slavery of sin. For who you serve, that one is your master. If you serve sin, sin will be your master. And I've met people who've done it all, and they're still not satisfied. They just keep trying to go and go, and their lives are miserable. But when, when, if somebody was to break those shackles, and you could be free, and you could walk around, and nobody was going to come after you with the net and put you back in those shackles, you would be free. So Paul says, why, if you were free from this slavery, would you want to go back to that, that slavery? So understand grace for what it is. If we are in Christ, we should no longer desire to sin and desire in that behavior. A few points out of this letter. One, compromise. You see, the Jews and the Gentiles were eating together, and a lot of the problems, believe it or not, arose out of their eating together. Now, we, we don't understand that. But in that day, they sat close together. A lot of times they reclined together, and they would, what we would look at as barbaric behavior, it would be normal to them. Forget about metal utensils. They would pass everything with their hands. The bread would be passed. I'd break a piece off and then give it to you. And, you know, by the time the 10th guy had it, everybody's fingers were around his portion of bread. But that wasn't a problem because when you ate with somebody, you were, you were one with that person. So understandably, clash of cultures, Jew and Gentile coming together in an in a eating setting was, was causing a lot of problems. Now, we know this because even in Galatians 2, Peter was carried away with some of this hypocrisy. He would eat with the Gentiles, but when the Jewish brothers came in, he would kind of get up and walk away from the Gentiles and start eating with the Jews. And Paul says in Galatians 2, I took Peter and I opposed him to his face because he played the hypocrite. How could you do this? You know, how could you act in this hypocrisy? But again, and, and I'm not trying to be facetious, but I like to interject myself into the times. You've got Jews, you've got Gentiles eating together. And the Gentiles may say, hey, pass the pork chops. Now, the Jews didn't eat pork, so that might have been a problem, but they might have just kind of sucked it up for the sake of fellowship. But once the Gentiles said, hey, pass the bloody meat juice that I could dip my bread in, that probably was over the line. No, seriously. So you would have to go to the Gentile and say, hey, Gentile brother, can you live without not eating that bloody stew juice for your Jewish brother? For the sake of Christ and unity, yeah, I'm going to give that up. To the Jew. Can you eat with that Gentile brother knowing full well when you're sitting next to him that he's not circumcised? Oh, it's a tough one. He should be circumcised. But you know what? For the sake of unity, you know, let's, let's kind of, I'll do it. Okay, shake hands and sit down and eat together. So it's good to compromise, but never with the foundational tenets of God's word and never with unrepentant sin. But you can compromise with things that are not important. If the Bible is not dogmatic, we shouldn't be. And these have come up, and I'm hitting this from all different angles. 
I've been asked these questions, so I'm going to kind of go into it a little bit. Um, the you can't do list. I'll start with the you can't do this list. I've actually had people come to me and say, uh, can we dance at a wedding? Does your church have a problem with that? I'm like, uh, no, as long as you're not going to do anything lewd, go ahead and dance with your wife. That's not a problem, you know. And again, somebody said that that was a problem. Uh, I've had people come to me and say, my wife wants to work and get a job, but we've been told by other Christians that my wife shouldn't work. Uh, the Bible doesn't say that your wife can't work. And as a matter of fact, some single mothers and single fathers have to work. They have no choice. Now, if you have enough to eat and you're well taken care of and your kids are young, should both of you be out of your house so you can get another car? You probably shouldn't, but I wouldn't say you're in sin. I'd say you're not doing a great justice to your children. Again, only you know your personal situation. Now the, um, the, the have-to-do list. And people have come to me. Am I in sin if I don't homeschool my child? No, you're not in sin if you don't homeschool your child. It's, you know it's really sad? Christians live in fear of other Christians. Some Christians feel like they have the right to impose their opinion, that's not biblical, on somebody else. If we pulled all the Christian kids out of the public schools, where would the salt and light be? Now, my son is eight years old, and I pump him full of facts, and uh, he has a strong faith in God, and because he has the Asperger's, he's got an incredible head for memory, memorization. I can't wait for the day that they start to teach evolution in my son's class. <laughs> I am going to be in the principal's office every week, I'm sure, <laughs> because he's going to frustrate that teacher. So, listen, I don't have an issue with it. I mean, if I think that my son is starting to turn and he's too weak, and they're, they're overcoming him, and then, then I have to make a decision. But homeschool, I, I think homeschooling is great. If you can give that one-on-one -on -one with your kid, certainly one-on-one -on -one is better than one-on-30, 30, 30 kids. So I, I don't have a problem with it. But we've got to stop pushing our views that are not biblical and become the Judaizers and Judaize people and, and force people to do something that the Bible doesn't really talk about. The second thing here is, Responding to change and responding to authority. The Jews' attitude was, hey, what about circumcision? I'm looking at this letter. There's nothing here about circumcision. There's nothing here about eating pork. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not really happy with this. The Gentiles probably were definitely on the other end of the, uh, end of the spectrum saying rules. <laughs> That's legalistic. Don't give us any rules. But something had to give. And the church had to make a deciding judgment, and James had to make that judgment, and the letter thus was written. He didn't please everyone. The Judaizers didn't acquiesce to James, because the Bible goes on to tell us that the Judaizers, okay, as we go further in the scripture, had to be addressed again by Paul, because even though the church said this, they still were going to push their agenda. And it's no surprise, because even today, those with agendas will continue to push their visions until they get their way. There's just some people who are like that. A good portion of the New Testament, again, is dedicated to refuting Judaizing doctrine, which is really rebellious behavior. And I find something interesting in Titus 1, an obscure part of Scripture. Probably not many people read it. It's a very small book. But one of the qualifications of a church overseer, be it an elder or a pastor, is to have the courage to convict the unsubordinate and the contradictory and stop them from trying to push their agendas and their divisions. We innately hate to be under anyone's authority. Think about it. That's why so many brilliant scientists are evolutionists. It doesn't mean they're stupid. They probably know much more facts than we do. 
But you've got to look again. I like to interject myself into somebody else. The brilliant scientist, he's a genius. He's smarter than 90-something percent of the world's population. He's so smart that that's, that intelligence builds up a pride. Paul says that love edifies, but knowledge puffs up. And he cannot fathom, he cannot digest the possibility that he may have to be under authority to an all-knowing, all-powerful you know, God. See, it's a pride issue. He's in rebellion. Even on the police job, I uh, stopped a guy who, I'm in a marked police car. I, don't, I still don't get people. He cuts me off. He runs the stop sign, cuts me off, right? The light turns green. I go across. I go to after him. He ends up parking in a fire zone. He's like, so I get out of the car, and he's, he's like, what's your problem? I'm like, I have days like that. And this guy's in his 60s, and, it, you know, I'm trying to really be nice and, and just give him the ticket and just be very professional. And uh, one of the, my fellow officers said, uh, he, he could give him another one. He's in a fire zone. And I said, no, I don't want to be vindictive. And I went my way. Because, you know, I try to set an example to these guys. But even people in their 60s and 70s, they still, you think, they're acting like they're in their 20s. Oh, I'm, you know, it's this attitude, this chip about authority. Anything that has to do with authority, they have a problem with. I see a lot of you are smiling. I'm definitely hitting home here. And today, you know, I go for, from a position of me personally. It's, it's humbling for me, but it's good for me. I go from a position here of ecclesiastical authority. In a few hours, I go suit up. I go on patrol. And I have to say yes, sir, to a bunch of secular men that are my supervisors. And sometimes one of my supervisors will say, well, what do you think? And my answer is, you're the boss. You're the sarge. Whatever you say, I'll do, as long as it's not immoral, illegal, or ethical, unethical. I'm under authority. We're all under somebody's authority. We have to be. And if not, we're under God's authority. How does that make you feel today? Does anybody feel convicted by the way they behave at work? Because we all have to submit to somebody. Now, some of you may say, you know, but Pastor Joe, my boss is a jerk. I've heard that. But you know what? There's a lot of jerky bosses out there. We, can, we all can't be the CEO or the head of the company, can we? Somebody's got to be the, the worker, the grunt, right? Kids, teens, are you in your parents' home? Are they paying your bills? Are they paying your tuition? Are they paying your utilities? The Bible says submit to your parents. Again, as long as they're not telling you to do something immoral or illegal, submit to your parents. I'm going to get hit on the head for this one, but wives, don't tell me your husband's a jerk. You married him. You married him, and you said, when you put that ring on his finger, and you said, I do, you said that I will submit to your spiritual authority. Now, again, if your husband asks you to do something illegal, immoral, or unethical, and don't tell me doing the laundry is illegal or immoral. No, I'm just kidding. That's a joke. <laughs> if I get too much resistance, I'll have that scratched from the tape. Um, anyway, another great irony is the Judaizers wanted to hold people to the authority of the law, but they didn't want to be held to authority of the church. It was hypocritical. I want you to follow the law. You need to be circumcised. You need to be do this. You need to do that. And then when the church says, well, we're in authority over you, we're, we're going to supersede that, they had an issue with that, and they kept on pushing their agendas. And that happens today. There are those who like to tell you what to do or have an aberrant craving for leadership or are self-appointed leaders, and they don't want to be under authority themselves. That's a hard lesson to learn in life. Verse 30. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. 
When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted the brethren with many words and strengthened them. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So verse 31, they read the letter and they rejoiced over its encouragement. I'm going to repeat the same scripture that I used the last time. 2 Corinthians 3.17 is beautiful. It says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom in Christ is a relationship, not a religion. It's not a set of rules. My relationship with my wife isn't wrought with rules that we have to follow. We don't get up every morning and get our list and, and, and say, here, you've got to follow these, I'll take yours, and let's negotiate. It's not how it works with a relationship. We're free to love each other, and it's a beautiful marriage, not a burden. By the same token, you are free to love your creator. Verse 32, we see Silas come up again. Silas, a little bit about him, the Bible tells us he's a Greek, he's a prophet, and according to 1 Peter 5:12, he helped Peter compile or publish 1 Peter. So he was uh, definitely a pretty useful guy. And we'll see shortly that the Apostle Paul takes Silas on the second missionary journey. Verse 36. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This is a very interesting portion of Scripture, and this is what we're going to end with. In verse 36, Paul wanted to go back where they had already been on the first missionary journey to strengthen the brethren. Verse 37, Barnabas, Paul's partner, wanted to take his nephew, John Mark, with them on the journey. Verse 38, Paul felt that John Mark was unreliable as he deserted them before at Perga. And we read that in Acts chapter 13. I'm just going to play with this a little bit. I think Paul was a realist, and I think Barnabas was an idealist. Barnabas' name meant son of encouragement. It doesn't mean one was right, one was wrong. This is just how I see it. After Paul... His Lystra experience, remember what happened there. He was stoned and left for dead. I think Paul was loving John Mark and looking out for him as John Mark fled for much less. Now, Paul got stoned, and uh, all the disciples with him continued going. John Mark left, really, for no reason. We don't even, we're not even given a reason. Again, I think he was loving John Mark, uh, Paul was. Would you put a fearful soldier into combat with an otherwise crackerjack platoon on a military mission. Afghanistan? No, you wouldn't do that. You would risk harming the other soldiers, and you would risk harming him, because now, instead of continuing their mission, they have to deal with this guy who's, whatever, panicking or, or falling behind or, or deserting, okay? And that they have other things they have to deal with. So why is it any different for spiritual matters? What if John Mark was a likable guy? Um, would that make Paul look boorish or mean? See, these are hard decisions in ministry. How could you say no to John Mark? He's such a nice guy. You're not showing grace. Paul, you're not showing forgiveness. 
Paul, you didn't get over what happened back there when he deserted you. It's, it's a personal thing. It's a grudge. Do you see how the emotional component can sneak up again? My opinion, and a lot of pastors don't want to touch this, but I'm going to. And I could be wrong, but it's my opinion. I agree with Paul. I think Barnabas should have acquiesced to Paul. Furthermore, Acts 13 said, if you read Acts 13, we covered, the Holy Spirit said, separate Paul and Barnabas unto me. He didn't mention anybody else. He said Paul and Barnabas. Did nepotism play a part? I don't know, maybe a small part. But again, I'm not, I'm not sitting here saying that Barnabas was an egregious sin. It's just what I think. I think Barnabas should have acquiesced to Paul. However, you're going to see something good happen in the end. In verse 39, we're still getting to the apex here, the fever pitch. It says the contention became so sharp. So they have this pretty sharp argument where there's a split. Um, and, you know, Proverbs 27:17 says that, uh, you know, a man, a man rubs against another man like ironing, sharpening iron. Uh, you know, I totally messed up the verse. But basically what it says is, that when men get together or women get together, they, you know, they, they, it's like accretion, right? They, they get together and sometimes they, they wear on each other, but you know, it's an accountable relationship, it's a, um, you know, it's a convicting relationship. And what happens is, is you ha- if you have strong brothers and sisters in your life, you become a better Christian in a sense because you're held accountable. You're not kind of out there on your own. So one of the pastors over at Oldbridge, when we had our what they called roundtable discussions, Sometimes there would be like some heated discussions. I mean, we didn't, you know, threaten each other or, or do anything like that. But it would get heated because we were talking about doctrine. It was really good. It was a good uh, sharpening session. And one of my friends who's a pastor in Richmond County said, when iron sharpens iron, sometimes sparks fly. Right? So, so what happens is there's a, a contention and then there's a separation. There's a, um, they parted from one another. So you, ha- you see the sad situation caused by the parting of these brothers for a time. The good news is John Mark later on was able to prove himself reliable to the point where Paul found him useful. Now, if you're taking notes, that's covered in Colossians 4.10. It's covered in 2 Timothy 4.11. And, of course, we see the gospel of Mark. And it's believed that John Mark was the author with a lot of his information being taken from Peter. So a few points that come out of this in closing is there's a rift between three brothers in the Lord that eventually worked itself out. And you see that constant flux sometimes in the body of Christ between reconciliation and restoration. And many of you may have experienced it yourself. And many of you at this very point in time may be praying for restoration in a family situation or a best friend situation, a misunderstanding, or something where you guys have parted and you're praying for that, that reconciliation and restoration. And that's a good thing. Two, man's dispute was an opportunity for God to sovereignly get two missionary teams going. Now, let me just go back into the Old Testament, and then let me kind of come back to this. God, this is a great study in the book of Joshua and the book of Judges that we're doing on Wednesday nights, and we're going to be in the uh, latter part of uh, Judges 1 uh, this Wednesday. But what happened was God made a promise, a covenant to the children of Israel. He was like a husband to them, you know, and they broke the covenant. They broke the agreement. So the, the, the agreement, you know, in legal terms, is now null and void. You can't have one party agreeing to it and the other party walking out. It's a breach of contract. So God made a new covenant, the Bible says, and that new covenant was by the blood of Jesus. So it's kind of good that man broke the first covenant so that we could get that new covenant and that we all could be saved by grace, by the blood of Jesus. Now, going to this, I'm going to go to the uh, projector again. 
I could find my equipment. Here it is. So what happens here is, again, man's dispute was an opportunity for God to sovereignly get two missionary teams going. So what happens is, Paul and Silas go across Asia Minor. This is, again, modern-day Turkey. Uh, They go west. They cross all of Asia Minor, and then later on we're going to see they cross the Asian Sea, and they head into Europe. Okay? So that's the first team. The second team is Barnabas and John Mark. And what they do is they sail for Cyprus, and then they redouble their efforts about the great uh, evangelistic work they do in Cyprus. So what you see is a paralleling, right? And I think that was a good thing. God can take any seemingly bad situation and cover it and turn it into a good situation. I think that all these men dearly loved the Lord. I think they were solid brothers. And even though man had a dispute, God was able to take that and put it back together and make something beautiful occur out of it. So in conclusion, what is grace? Let's just, because I think chapter 15 really covers a lot of grace and a lot of different angles, and I wanted to hit it from a lot of different angles. Well, we know that grace, I think we should all know by now, grace is not a set of rules or a strict adherence to the Lord, to, to the law, excuse me. You have to do that. You can't do this. It's not a set of rules. It's a relationship with God. But on the other hand, we know that grace is also not a license to sin. It's not a disregarding of sin. And we saw that in Paul and Romans. Unfortunately, many give a one-sided view of grace. Yes, by grace through faith we are saved and our sins are forgiven. But remember, somebody paid a very heavy price for the sins that we've committed and we will continue to commit. And it's because of our sin that Jesus had to go to the cross. So why would we willingly continue in sin, knowing that that's what put Jesus on the cross? 1 John 1, I'll leave you with this, says this. If we say we have fellowship with him, with God, and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. So my prayer is that we ask God to reveal to us those things in our lives that are hindering our fellowship with him and hindering our commitment to him. Let's pray.